There is a country that has a relatively small Muslim minority, at only 7%, and yet a Muslim is its president. The country is Guyana, a small Caribbean country in the north of Latin America. Another country in the region, Trinidad and Tobago, witnessed an attempted coup in the 1990, led by a Muslim leader, Yasin Abubakar. These attention-catching examples point to the vitality and relevance of Islam in the Caribbean. But the presence of Muslims in the Caribbean is much more than politics. In fact, politics constitutes a minor manifestation of Muslim faith, cultures, histories, and legacies in the region. Welcome to episode 8 of Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast, a project by the Abu Suleiman Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University in Virginia. In this special episode, I host Dr. Alia Khan and Dr. Kenneth Chitwood. The episode discusses the coming of Islam to the Caribbean, Muslim diversity, ethno-linguistic differences, material and cultural production, major historical developments, Muslim politics, and knowledge production. Muslims of the Caribbean are a growing community due to the continued conversion to Islam in the region. This wide-ranging episode serves as a broad introduction into this Muslim community's rich history, legacy, and present. I'm joined by two wonderful scholars. Dr. Ali Khan is director of the Global Islamic Studies Center and associate professor in the Department of English Language and Literature and the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her book, Far From Mecca, Globalizing the Muslims Caribbean, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020, is the first academic monograph on the comparative literature, music, and histories of enslaved African Muslims and indentured South Asian Indian Muslims in the Caribbean. Dr. Khan's academic and creative writing also appears in publications including GLQ, the Caribbean Review of Gender Studies, Caribbean Quarterly, the Journal of West Indian Literature Pre, Caribbean Writing, and Guernica. Her interviews on Caribbean and U.S. Islam and Muslim culture have appeared on and in national public radio, The Washington Post, Religion News, American Muslim Today, The Police Project, The Black Agenda Report, Sapelo Square, and Chicago's Radio Islam. My other guest is Dr. Kenneth Chitwood. He's a senior research fellow with the Muslim Philanthropy Initiative, MPI, an initiative of Lake Institute on Faith and Giving and the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. He is also conducting research on the intersections of ethnography and journalism with the University of Southern California's Center for Religion and Civic Culture's Engaged Spirituality Project. He is the author of the Religion News Association Best Nonfiction Book, The Muslims of Latin America and the Caribbean, published by Lynn Reiner in 2021. I hope you will enjoy listening to this episode. And here we are with Professor Alia Khan and Professor Ken Chitwood. Alia and Ken, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Armin, for having us. Yeah, indeed. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So we're going to immediately go into our conversation, the topic uh, about Muslims and Islam in the Caribbean. So let's start with the basics, assuming that many of our listeners would have some knowledge about the Caribbean, but would like to know a little bit more about it. So tell us a bit uh, about how Islam came to this region 
what are the main drivers of Islam in the region, the influences, how it came, how it spread, what time periods are we talking about here? So this is a really long story, and I think Ken and I can split it up. Ken, would you like to start us off with the Moros and the Moriscos? Yeah, sure. I mean, I tend to, um, most of us have talked about uh, the development of the Muslim community or the history of Islam in the the region, according to a few different historical periods. And the first of them uh, starts with the initial European encounter with the uh, Americas through Spanish uh, explorers and colonizers. And they were heavily influenced by the Spanish peninsular history, which had included conflict between Catholic crown uh, and Muslim and and Jewish dynasties and kingdoms that were still existing on the peninsula at the time. And they were only able to complete the Reconquisto, the Reconquest, uh, from the Catholic powers perspective uh, of the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, the same year, of course, as all U.S. school children tend to know to this day, that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, And uh, when he arrived, he brought with them not only Muslims, possibly on the manifest in the ships that arrived, but then also uh, especially in the minds of the Spanish soldiers who came to try to conquest the Americas for the Spanish Catholic crown, uh, often calling the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and the wider Americas Los Moros or the Moors, as they had called their enemies back in, in Spain. And so that, that kind of starts the, the encounter between Islam and the Americas at, at the same time that Europe also runs into and then begins to colonize uh, the Americas. And those two historical moments, I think, are intimately linked and yet not so often talked about as they could. And then we can continue on with the transatlantic slave trade in which historians like Sylvia and Diouf estimate that there might have been as much as 10% of enslaved Africans who might have been Muslims, which makes sense given that, you know, the slave trading regions of West Africa, like Senegal, Mali, uh, Guinea, and so forth, were majority, already majority Muslim regions of the world. And there, there are records of them, you know, of people enslaved on plantations in the Caribbean and in the United States, um, people who have Muslim names. And one of the things I study is some of the texts that some of these, edu- some educated men left behind. So um, texts that are combined autobiographies and theological treatises that were written by enslaved, mostly Sufi West African scholars in the United States and in the Caribbean. Uh, probably the most well-known instance of those is the American, um, the a man who was in, uh, enslaved in the United States, Omar Ibn Said. His texts are owned now by the Library of Congress, most of them, uh, his autobiography is. And there's a recent really interesting opera about him, which I haven't had the chance to see, but I think it's playing in LA now. I've heard a couple of the you know, the librettos and stuff. And it's really just very interesting to hear, um, you know, Quranic surahs and so on translated to the um, opera form hmm. while telling That's a story. Right, right. While telling a story about slavery. And then so after that, uh, important thing to note is that although there were very many of these people and, you know, for example, they instigated the largest urban slave rebellion in the Americas in Bahia, Brazil in the 19th century, they didn't leave direct descendants, you know, mm-hmm. who like Muslim community descendants, as one could imagine, because of the exigencies. And of these were Muslims. The rebellion you're talking about was a Muslim rebellion. Yes, it was spearheaded by um, Hausa 
uh, Nago Yoruba Muslims, um, majority Muslims uh, rebellion in Bahia, Brazil. So the, the languages in which these works that you referred to were written, was it uh-huh. uh, in Arabic or some other languages? That's a really great question. So they were mostly all written in Ajami, which is essentially a combination of um, people's native languages, for example, Hausa or Wolof, but written in Arabic script. Mm-hmm. And this this is the case of many Muslim communities around the world that historically they mm-hmm. wrote their own language in Arabic script. Yes, Yes. We have such a uh, tradition in the Balkans, too. Yes, same thing. Um, but, you know, of course, there are there are some Quranic verses which are rendered entirely in Arabic, but it's a difficult translation job, right? Because you yes. have to know 19th century versions. You have to know not just classical Arabic, but you have to know 19th century versions. For the most part, it's 19th century um, texts that we have records of. You have to know 19th century versions of like Wolof, of Hausa, and so on. So you have to be multilingual, not just in the contemporary forms. But in the 19th century. Historically, yes. exactly. Yes. Yeah. So you both have indicated that there is this European colonialism coming from the British, from Spanish colonizers, and that in many ways influenced uh, these communities. So how did the English and Hispanic Caribbean uh, emerge, and, and how can we understand this diversity among the Muslims in the Caribbean too? Because some are English-speaking, others are Spanish-speaking. And so if you, if, if each of you could talk a little bit about this difference, division, if you will, similarities, differences, and, and distinctive characteristics that these communities might have. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite things uh, that I appreciate, there's many things I appreciate about uh, Aliyah's book, Far From Mecca, I have this great section at the end where, you know, you provocate the comparison between the Anglophone and the Hispanophone Caribbean, uh, which I appreciate being someone who specializes in the Hispanophone Caribbean. Uh, but yeah, the, I mean, the fragmentation of the Caribbean along linguistic and, and other lines as we know it today uh, is obviously, as, as you referenced, derived from a, a colonial past uh, and, and a, an ongoing uh, neo-colonial present, right? And, and so you have an emergence of different and sometimes conflicting intellectual traditions and cultural political identifications that uh, still dictate politics in the, in the region uh, and, and exchange in the region. Uh, but the Hispanophone Caribbean, as, as many might assume, is linked to the imaginary of Latin America on, on a wider scale through shared language and, and cultural connections, while at the same time physically forming part of the geographic region of the Caribbean. And so it exists at the juncture of two competing cultural contexts, the non-Hispanophone Caribbean on the one side and Latin America on the other, uh, which can sometimes expose it to sidelining and misunderstanding in both. And I think with the wealth of scholarship on the Anglophone Caribbean in comparison to the Hispanophone Caribbean, what we get is an opportunity uh, to, as, as John Eliot wrote in The Empires of the Atlantic World, to play an accordion, uh, at times pushing them together, the Anglophone and Hispanophone Caribbeans, to put them into conversation, seeing similarities, and then other times pulling them apart uh, to be able to highlight differences and paying attention to the overlap between the empires, addressing them on their own terms, but also looking at how uh, there are major structural differences and similarities in terms of geography, politics, economy, language, and, and development. And I think it's an exciting opportunity to be able to compare them because of those colonial legacies and and, and ongoing colonial trajectories in both contexts. Mm-hmm. The story in the Anglophone Caribbean post the transatlantic slave trade is one that accrues to indentured Indian laborers. Um, so, you know, colonial indentureship, in, uh, indentureship in the British colonies starts after the end of chattel slavery. 
1838 um, and lasts until 1917, not just actually in the British Caribbean, by which I mean Guyana, Trinidad, Jamaica, some of the smaller islands, but also Indian indentured laborers went to places like Guadeloupe and Martinique. For the most part, in the Anglophone Caribbean, they're from northern India, from places like Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, a little bit of Punjab, and somewhere and where is now um, Afghanistan. So maybe about again, ten percent of those people too were Muslims, which um, you know makes sense uh, with the demographics of you know colonial India. The majority of the rest, of course, were Hindus. So they ended up in the Caribbean too, working on these sugar plantations after the end of chattel slavery. Some of them were Muslim. That is actually my community. I was born in Guyana, and I'm Indo-Guyanese and Muslim too. So they are the ones who, you know, came into the 20th century as people, as the people who were known to be Muslims in the Caribbean, and particularly in the Anglophone Caribbean, which means that Islam has been thought of as an Indian religion in mm. many parts of the Caribbean. Interesting. Yes, until the 1990s, with in 1990, a coup against the Trinidadian government by um, Imam Yassin Abu Bakr and the Jamaat al-Muslimin in Trinidad, which was and is a majority uh, black Trinidadian Muslim organization. And I think that is when Islam first became legible to people in the Anglophone Caribbean as not just an Indian religion, but a religion that encompasses um, black Caribbean people. They were reverts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the populations of, 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 you know, converts and reverts have only grown in the Caribbean since then. And I think Ken can talk to that too in the Hispanophone Caribbean. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the 1990 coup, and I know you and I talked about it in yeah. the book talk earlier, but in the previous episode of my podcast, I talked with Imam Khalid Griggs, mm -hmm. who was a member of the Islamic Party in North America, many of whom actually migrated to the Caribbean. He doesn't believe there is direct connection between that and, you know, Yasin Bakr and the coup, but there, there's an interesting conversation there. So mm -hmm. uh, it's a plug-in for the previous episode for the listeners to, to go <laughs> back to it, but also to you to know that there, there is that conversation that I had with him, which I think you would find interesting too. Thank you. So, um, Ken, back to you. You wanted to say something. Yeah, I think it's been fun that we're, we're kind of bouncing into these historical periods and kind of connecting these, these more later ones. And I think... The difference here is the Hispanophone Caribbean was not as impacted by uh, indenture because of these differing colonial trajectories and, and networks that existed. And where the more contemporary story of Muslim communities in the Hispanophone Caribbean picks up, whether it be Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic, is with Arab immigration in the 19th, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and you see that really pick up mid-century with the Nakba and, and the fallout. Uh, from, mm -hmm. from the multiple conflicts that existed there. So a lot of Palestinian immigration into the Hispanophone Caribbean. Elsewhere in Latin America, you have a lot of people coming from, from Lebanon as well and, and Egypt and other places and arriving. And again, majority of them were Christians, uh, a minority were Muslim, uh, but they were able to establish some of the communities that exist still today and have created an infrastructure within the Hispanophone Caribbean. Uh, and so the majority of assumption about Muslims in the Hispanophone Caribbean will be that they are Arab Muslims. And even if there are reverts and those who have converted to Islam from the local population, uh, there's still, you know, a lot of people will ask them, oh, have you gone Arab now? Have you become Arab? You know, like, is that, is that what you've done? Have you betrayed your culture? You know, these types of questions because of that assumption 
but most of the time, I mean, various people would not even know uh, that there's a Muslim community in Hispanophone Caribbean locations. Oftentimes when I tell people I'm working with the, the Muslim community in Puerto Rico, they'll go, what? Like, I don't know about that. But then they'll remember, oh, I saw that mosque that one time off of Highway 2 or whatever. So it's there. Um, but uh, yeah, the assumptions are are relatively low, given, again, this lack of kind of larger populations that indenture brought uh, to the Anglophone Caribbean. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. I think this kind of historical setup that you just did sort of provides a real good segue into other areas of our conversation. So one thing that I wanted to highlight is that Islam as a global culture, global civilization has displayed tremendous ability over time and in different geographical locations to adapt to many realities to which Muslims moved. And where people became Muslims, they usually came to areas where there were pre-existing cultures and religions. And so as a result of the interaction between Islam and those pre-existing culture and religion, a lot of syncretic practices emerged, a lot of merging of pre-existing cultures with the newly introduced Muslim cultures and practices also flourished. So what are some of the main areas of syncretism among Caribbean Muslims? And how are these syncretic practices manifested? Mm -hmm. So this is a really interesting question because we are not talking about a region of the world here where um, Islam enters a place where everything is sort of, there's already a pre-existing singular culture where everyone is kind of settled. We're entering a place where everything is in formation, where, you know, many, many people from all over the world are meeting in the context of the colonization of the Americas and everything, culture is in formation and is hybridizing and syncretizing. All of these many forces are being pulled together at once. And Islam is just one strain of those. So one clear example of syncretism for Muslims in the uh, Anglophone Caribbean is a holiday called uh, Jose, which is essentially, um, it's the Muharram celebration of the martyrdom of Hassan and Hussein, the Prophet's grandsons. So the way that that translated into the Caribbean is that it was brought by the very few Shia who ended up in the Caribbean as indentured laborers. There aren't, there isn't really a large Shia community now. They were subsumed into the Sunni, the much larger um, Sunni Hanafi community. But um, they did, uh, they did give the Caribbean this celebration of Kose, which essentially involves um, processions of model tombs, the model tombs of Hussein and Hassan, accompanied by music that involves like a lot of drum music in the streets. And these, uh, these model tombs are carried in a procession toward a mythical Karbala as symbolized by the sea. So they're marched down to the sea, these model tombs, and then they are drowned in the ocean as a way to symbolize them reaching this extra local uh, mythical Karbala. That festival was stamped out in the 1800s, um, the late 1800s by the British who realized that it had become a place where people from all walks of life and all ethnic backgrounds congregated. Afro-Caribbean people in particular became drummers for the festival and there was a lot of also Hindu participation and in a colony that is dangerous, right? Where you want to keep all of the different labor laboring um, contingents apart. At the end of the 19th century, um, an incident happened called the Jose Massacre in Trinidad, where the British, first of all, legally limited the number of people who could participate in Jose and also um, stopped the processions from being able to enter the major cities of Port of Spain and San Fernando. But then there was this one incident in the 1880s where they just kind of fired into a crowd 
of revelers and killed a number of people that became known as the Hussein or the Muharram massacre. And um, it was an end point in Trinidad um, and also to Ga- and Guyana and Suriname for the end of, of that festival. And then what was left at the end of that festival then fell prey to a kind of um, end of the century, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the forces of Islamic purification and revival coming from primarily Sunni communities that saw the syncretic practice as, um, you know, any combination of like Shia, Shia practices, Bidah, and, and so forth. But the festival has been revived to some uh, extent in Trinidad and Jamaica, but it is nowhere near this like countrywide phenomenon, syncretic phenomenon that it used to be. And that's that's absolutely fascinating. Do we have similar examples in the Hispanic Caribbean, Ken? Yeah, what's interesting uh, there, I think, uh, when we talk about syncretism, when we talk about you know cultures coming together and 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 merging with one another, and the Caribbean often being seen as like uh, a laboratory of hybridization, right? Often, a lot of people have talked about uh, the Caribbean being this kind of hybrid place par excellence or something. Uh, which you know has some some problematic angles to it as well. But one of the things we often think about is the power dynamics and differentials that are at play. Um, and so, I think for now among contemporary communities, uh, you don't have uh, very explicit examples of hybridization. There are some subtle ones, some little ones. You can point to others in broader areas of, of Latin America. But it's more individual choices and options at the moment. There's not really a development of a, of a broader hybridization that I've been able to witness. But one of the things that I, I, I do look at is festivals of the, of the present that have uh, this kind of hybrid mix of the past as well. And one of them is La Fiesta de Santiago Apostol, uh, or the Festival of St. James the Apostle, who again is linked to this peninsular conquest history where St. James, the, the supposed brother of Jesus, is imagined by Spanish Catholic forces to have arrived and rode ahead of them into battle on a white steed, uh, trampling uh, Los Morros, the Moors. Uh, and again, they brought that over to the Caribbean and continued to celebrate that festival. And it's still celebrated today in a, in a municipality called Luis Aldea, which is just east of San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, that's predominantly... Uh, black Puerto Rican Afro Caribbean uh, community today, and if you ask people uh, in in the festival to identify the different characters, there's the the caballeros or the the knights, and then there's the gigantes, these kind of demon like characters. And the gigantes used to be los morros, um, and they're chased away by by the knights, the Spanish knights, as they're uh, parading through the street. And most people there would not identify the gigantes with Los Moros or, or the Muslims. In fact, the Vejigantes become a point of pride in the festival and is representative of, of Afro-Caribbean culture writ large. Um, and, and yet, when you look at the little statues of St. James that they parade through the streets, uh, there's these little decapitated, turbaned, bearded heads uh, that, that clearly represent Muslims as they've been slain by, by St. James. Um, and so that, that presence is still there. And it's what I, I often talk about as an absent presence that is being read into and, and Muslims as they interact with that festival, which is a, a very prominent festival within broader Puerto Rican cultural politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they read themselves into it, even though they're also read out of it. And it's that power differential that says, yeah, this is a, an example of some type of hybridization being brought over and being reread and recoded 
um, and yet now being recoded again. And I think that's what's exciting about the Hispanophone Caribbean and, and watching it on the ground is we're seeing these re-identifications, these retranslations, these hybridizations happening in real time. And I think you're going to see as those communities continue to develop, particularly among reverts, much more of the adaptation into local cultural vernaculars that we've seen elsewhere, perhaps that have existed longer in places like the Anglophone Caribbean or elsewhere within global Islamic landscapes. Yeah, that is so interesting. It reminds me of my visit to southern Spain, to Andalusia, exactly. and, and, and <laughs> going to some you know, churches and seeing exactly the same images of the Spanish fighters or warriors basically decapitating and killing and spearing the Moros, the Muslims, you know, and uh, and this is in the middle of the church, you know, you see th- you have these scenes that are very violent in their depiction, you know, and gory in many ways. That was uh, quite shocking for me when I first saw it, when I visited uh, southern Spain. And uh, it's so interesting to hear that these kind of cultural and religious production basically has found its way all the way to the Caribbean in those communities, especially in the Hispanic-speaking Caribbean. You both have highlighted the hybrid nature of the Caribbean. Uh, Alia, you talked about how this was almost like a perfect laboratory because there were no pre-existing cultures. So you have all of these different things are being put in flux and so on. So out of that hybridization that you talked about, what are some of the primary Muslim artifacts when it comes to cultural and material production? The Caribbean are well known around the world as the region that has this vibrant culture that is very vivid and alive and and joyful. So how do Muslims participate and partake in that? And what kind of cultural material production are they coming up with? I can say two things, but, you know, I want to, I want to clarify something I said a little earlier, you know, like it's not an absent space. There is indigeneity, right? And there are still indigenous people in the region and in indigenous cultures. It is just that in at least Guyana, which is like one place that you can point to that has a lot of Muslim and also an existing indigenous population, indigenous people tend to live in the interior, like in the Amazonian forest regions, whereas all of the former colonized tend to live on the fertile coastlands where the plantations were, and they tend to have the political power. You know, it's definitely a situation where indigenous people are excluded from um, the polity to a large extent. But in terms of the, um, you know, material production and so on, there, there's, I'm writing an article right now. So I mentioned that we have the texts, right? Like mm-hmm. these, these books, these autobiographies that are written by enslaved men. For example, um, I write about one that is written by a gentleman called Abu Bakr al-Siddiq in, in Jamaica. And there are other ones um, in places. There are other, there's another one in Jamaica. There are ones that we have from Trinidad. There are ones that we have from Panama. And as I mentioned, also the United States, there's that. But I'm also right now writing an article about the transmission of music from mm-hmm. pre-partition India, religious music, from pre-partition India to the Caribbean in the form of these Hasida religious songs that mm-hmm. were brought over by uh, Urdu-speaking Muslim migrants to the Caribbean in the 19th century. And they are not from Muslim migrants to the Caribbean who are explicitly Sufi, but they are derived from the flowering Barelvi and Diobandi traditions of Islam in that part of the world. So there's definitely some Sufi influence. Of course, the Qasida is an early Arabic poetry form, but it has it, it's, it takes the form of in the subcontinent and subcontinental diasporas of these religious devotional songs that are often sung at Milad celebrations, birthday of the Prophet 
celebrations, you know, and that's still true in India, in Pakistan, and it is also true in the Caribbean. Of course, as you know, I'm sure you know, those practices like the singing of Casitas and um, Milad itself are under scrutiny by, um, you know, Salafi Muslims um, who, you know, think that it is bid'a innovation, um, and the imposition of culture into religion. But there are very strong forces in the Caribbean of like, let's call it an Indo-Iranian Islam that are keeping the tradition of the Qasida and Milad um, alive, even even as they exist in tension with, um, you know, this kind of um, revivalist purification of the religion. So you mentioned that these were the communities that migrated to the Caribbean a while ago, and the, uh, the culture of Qasidas and similar songs in the Pakistani subcontinent continued to evolve. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's in, it would be interesting to know, had there been any studies comparing, are those Qasidas yeah. that came to the Caribbean, you know, it's almost like you now have them frozen in the past. They obviously have their own evolution, but it's a different evolution than the one so, so that, that you find in India and Pakistan. So do you know anything about that and can you tell us more about it? So as far as I know, there are no studies. There is no book or there is no, you know, to my knowledge, like singular even essay, academic essay written about casitas in the Caribbean. That's what I'm trying I'm trying to do right now is write an article about it, is write the first article about it. But no, there are not. You know, I've traced some of the casitas to pre-existing forms of poetry called shayari in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, from these 19th century poets. Uh, so, you know, there are individual casitas that we can trace directly to them. But you're right in thinking about the practices being larger and, and have, having evolved in the subcontinent. The way, too, that Indo-Caribbean Muslims interact with them is from these songbooks. The songbooks are what are frozen in time and that are really interesting to look at um, because the songbooks usually have the casitas written in Urdu written in English transliteration of the Urdu and then in translation of the English. It's like trilingual songbooks, mm-hmm. right? Um, those are the texts that you want to look at if you want to look at like yeah. how really are they frozen in time. And and now because the vast majority of Indo-Caribbean Muslims cannot speak Urdu, they sing from the transliteration. But there mm-hmm. is also a practice too of like there are native like Caribbean casitas that people mm-hmm. wrote in the Caribbean and some of them are in English, so, you know, just in English. So I know it more from the Caribbean side rather, of course, than the continental one, subcontinental one. Yeah, that is so fascinating. You know, I'm reminded of even in the talk I gave <laughs> yesterday, right? At yes. the University of Michigan, I talked about the migration of Bosniak Muslims from Bosnia at the end of the 19th century to the Ottoman Empire parts that became Turkey later on. And so mm-hmm. you still have today, more than 100 years later, villages of Bosniaks in Turkey, mm-hmm. people who speak Bosnian language as it was spoken 120 years ago, you so know, and so yeah. it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a fantastic field work for anthropologists, ethnolinguists, all of these disciplines to see, you know, you have a perfect laboratory to look at, Mm -hmm. you know, this is how people used to speak 120 years ago, because that's the language that they transmitted. And because they were not in the wider environment that the Bosnians were, Mm -hmm. in which they had to interact and there were linguistic reforms and things like that, the language that they speak, yeah, it is recognizable to be Bosnian 
can fully understand, but there's a lot of usages of words and expressions that are completely now, that have completely died out uh, by now. So when you mentioned that, it sort of reminded me of it, you know, and and so how migration contributes to preserving culture from a certain period of time, as opposed to how those cultures continue evolving in their native spaces is really a fascinating, Mm -hmm. I think, thing to look at. Can uh, anything you can add to this about this uh, cultural material production? Yeah, first, uh, so excited about your article, Alia. <laughs> when it happens, wait. yeah. <laughs> yeah, when it comes together, no, no pressure, uh, but cannot wait. Uh, but yeah, as as an ethnographer, I, I really tended to focus on a lot of the mundane material aspects uh, of Muslim life in the context that I've been in. Everything from there's this story I talk about a Palestinian Muslim migrant, Salim, in, in the, the, the hinterlands of Puerto Rico in the mountainous former coffee producing regions. Uh, and his coffee cup, for me, is a significant Muslim artifact in the Caribbean because he says on the front of his business that if we don't do business, we at least drink a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And that's how people have come to know him. And so, you know, I remember very dizzyingly, shakingly talking to him after eight hours, you know, on my, I don't know, 20th cup of coffee uh, and realizing uh, perhaps in some form of trance, uh, that, that this is a key connecting point uh, for, for, for conversion, for reversion, for, for people who said, yeah, I came in to buy an appliance at his store. I ended up drinking a lot of coffee. And several years later, I converted to Islam or two months later, I converted to Islam. And so those types of things or the Gujarati Muslim community in Barbados who trying to endear themselves to the local community, integrate in some way and have a physical form uh, constructed a, a table that was used by the, the, the local government uh, as their cabinet table. Um, you know, so, so those types of artifacts are significant uh, Islamic artifacts to me in some way because they represent um, you know, migrant communities trying to connect, trying to engage and using mundane items to do so. But then you also see things uh, like the handala or um, asayasa, that this uh, kind of kid who's got his arms bound, he's kind of dirty, he's a symbol uh, developed uh, by a cartoonist uh, in the 1960s and has become a symbol of, of Palestinian nationalism and, and defiance. And you go to a lot of different mosques in, in the Hispanic and Caribbean and you'll see it hanging here in the corner or hanging there in the corner. And that's been picked up by local Puerto Rican Muslims who also are a, a, a people without a nation or a country without a nation, right? They identify as a nation and yet they do not have the polity of a nation. Um, and so they've created Puerto Rican Palestinian solidarities and have been able to create new cultural artifacts where they merge the Palestinian and Puerto Rican flags and have made that a central aspect of their Islamic identification as well. And some of them being political activists before they're converting to Islam. And so I, I, I appreciate these more kind of traditional Islamic artifacts that we, we look at, but then also these kind of non-traditional ones to look at these very mundane items that are central to Muslim lives mm-hmm. in, in this context. You know, I think, Ken, you have a whole article there about coffee, um, about the transmission of kahwa from the Gulf region um, and from the, through the Gulf of Aden to the rest of the Muslim world and thence to now to Puerto Rico. I mean, it is. Coffee is yeah. totally an artifact of Muslim culture. So is tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't familiar with your article, and I need I, I need that article, Ken, because I recently actually gave a talk in our local mosque. They they built a beautiful coffee house within the mosque called Kahwa, of course. Yeah. And so I talked about exactly what you just mentioned, Alia, now, and what I'm sure Ken wrote in his article about, you know, the the role of coffee in Muslim cultures and the contributions 
you know, how Muslims basically facilitated the spread of coffee culture around the world. So if nothing else, if Muslims did nothing else in history <laughs> and just spread this habit of drinking coffee, I think that's enough, you know? It's <laughs> I raise my coffee cup on the raises her tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's an article yet to be written. But uh, yeah, now you've given me a homework <laughs> assignment. I appreciate it. Uh. Let's also talk a little bit about uh, the intra-Muslim diversity within the Caribbean. So, can you give us a little bit of a breakdown in terms of? different schools of thought that Muslims belong to in the Caribbean, you know, the Sunni, the Shia, Ahmadiyya, any others. How are the intra-Muslim contestations, tolerance, you know, lack thereof, all of this in the Caribbean? How does it play out? Is it similar to what we are seeing in the larger, you know, Muslim world, if you will? Or are there any kind of unique developments within that? Or are there any, maybe even fusions between these different groups. Um, I don't know anything about it, so I'm just asking anything that comes to mind. So the sectarian tensions in the Anglophone Caribbean are not quite the same as they are elsewhere in the world. Uh, if you're thinking of the major tension being between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam, that's not true in the Caribbean. There are not enough Shia for that to really be the case. As I mentioned, you know, there were some, but they were mostly subsumed into the um, Sunni population just for demographic reasons. After 1979, there's at least one Iranian missionary who made it to Guyana at least um, and started off like... Well, two or three small small Shia Muslim communities in Guyana at least but they're haven't they're not very visible or vocal who is the major foil to the majority Sunni Hanafi population are Ahmadis at the beginning of the 20th century and mid 20th century a number of missionaries came from you know first colonial India and then Pakistan later on who were members of the Ahmadi sect that was first propagated by Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. And as you know, you probably know that the Ahmadi Quran is one that has been disseminated far and wide in and, and, and reached the Caribbean almost before uh, other ones did, other translations of the, the Quran did because of just um, really heavy Ahmadi proselytization and missionary work. So as, as a result of that missionizing, um, they are the visible minority uh, Muslim sect in the Anglophone Caribbean, but they too are divided. And this, of course, is while they have been declared apostates and non-Muslims by the Pakistani state mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s, uh, in which they originated. But uh, both sects of Ahmadis uh, exist too in the Caribbean. You have the Qadianis and then the Lahoris, you know, they, they still too exist as two different Ahmadi subsects that are in tension with each other and then in tension with the Sunnis. Okay. Yeah, one of the things I often talk about is, especially within the broader American context, uh, so, you know, looking at Latin mm -hmm. America and, and, and beyond, you know, the, the global diversity of, of different ideologies, different schools is kind of telescoped into the region. Uh, so in, in, a, in a kind of a miniature form, if you were to look at a reverse telescope, uh, right, and it kind of comes in and it's smaller communities, which creates different dynamics, so less perhaps sectarian division. And You've even seen this this Ahmadi and broader Sunni contestation uh, emerge in the Hispanophone Caribbean as the Ahmadi have moved in with missionaries as of the last 10 years with, with a lot of intention. And in Puerto Rico in the last five years have grown their community from one uh, to about 10, you know, tenfold increase in five years. It's not big by any means, but they've already experienced pushback when they tried to have a local radio show and someone came in and tried to pay off the, the radio station to not broadcast the, the Ahmadi 
uh, radio program, you know, and so there's there's already these contestations of of turf, uh, you know, going going on as as well. But then you also have this broader diversity of global Islam that that is present within the Americas, um, and I think I've been able to encounter, uh, you know, Ibadi. Uh, and from from Omani immigrants, and then you've you've got Sufi different Sufi Turuk and and lineages that exist uh, across the space. Um, and sometimes within the life of a single revert, I, I know of a Puerto Rican Muslim who now who's now in New York, who started out within the Nation of Islam, uh, and then was with the Shia community, and then was Sunni, and now is Sufi. Uh, and so you know he's kind of had this trajectory through different. Uh, traditions uh, as well, you know, and kind of brings them all together in his contemporary practice. And I think it's, it's really kind of fascinating to, again, see how the global diversity is telescoped into the region, but then it's created different dynamics because of that, that, that smaller nature of it. And then also that it's not as geographically linked as it is in other places. We tend to think of different geographic locations within the global Islamic landscape as tending to one school or between kind of a contest between two major schools or, or sects uh, or kind of a few different ones. And in the Caribbean or in the Americas as a whole, you get them all together. And, and, and it's smaller, um, but you get them all together. And so you also see with the reverts, some different options being available, then perhaps this is what I was born into um, is, is now kind of this, I'm, I'm shopping around through the different, you know, madhab, or I'm, I'm just kind of looking around at different communities and, and, and seeing where I fit, seeing what connects uh, with me, with my history, with my culture. And, and that's a really interesting dynamic to kind of, again, watch uh, and, and observe as an ethnographer on the ground through interviews or, or through interactions with folks uh, at different uh, masjid around the, the Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, and something that Alia mentioned earlier about the Muslim rebellion in Brazil, and even though we're focusing on the Caribbean primarily in this in this uh, episode, I know, Ken, that you wrote something about halal food production in Brazil, and that Brazil is one mm. of the, if not the largest, producer of halal beef in the world. So can you tell us just a little bit more about that? Because I thought it is too good an information <laughs> to just pass over and to kind of connect. Maybe that's the uh, sort of... Um, Revenge for the for the crashing of the Muslim rebellion. Now, now even like word halal beef, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah. Buyer beef. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. This, is the, this is the the final the final revolution yeah. uh, it's through meat production. Uh, yeah, it's a great factoid. I always tell people when I do presentations, they'll learn one thing, they'll remember one thing, and it's usually that. Um, and it's a great thing to pull out at uh, I don't know cocktail parties or <laughs> meetings with friends. You know, uh, it's a good thing to know. But yeah, by far, Brazil is the largest exporter of meat in the world. I mean, they're, they're, they're meat kings in terms of, of that uh, landscape of trade. Uh, and that is also true with halal meat production. By far, the largest exporters of halal uh, beef in the world. And they're even expanding it. They just announced a couple of months ago an expansion of that market and building more production facilities uh, in, in Brazil because it's been so lucrative selling to Gulf states, but also to Malaysia, to Indonesia, etc. And And I think... What that highlights are the ways in which we tend to think of uh, Islam, Muslims, and kind of put it in a religious landscape, kind of, you know, we're looking at all religious things. But as I kind of hinted at with those mundane artifacts earlier, and we were talking about a little earlier, about coffee being central, you know, financial networks are, are just as important and very historically significant in the spread of Islam around the world. In the Indian Ocean, through the Sahel, uh, it was often marketers, traders bringing 
not only goods, but then also Islam with them. Um, and there's been research by people like Shola Marquez, Kevin Funk, Kevin Funk's uh, an IR uh, specialist, and he's got a new book out called Rooted Globalism. And he talks about the halal trade in Brazil and says it's this really interesting mix of not really that religious and yet obviously defined by the fact that it is a religious product they are producing. And so these interesting mm-hmm. tensions that are created uh, within the halal trade. And, and he looks at it from the perspective of IR, so that, you know, rooted globalism and global uh, movements and things like that. But yeah, I think it's, it's one of those hints that this is more than what we traditionally associate with Islam or what the public might traditionally associate with Islam going on here, that there are financial landscapes, there are technological landscapes, there are media landscapes that define what Islam is, how Muslims are in the Caribbean or in, in the wider American hemisphere as well. So if we go back several decades ago around the world, there was a wave of religious revivals, not only in Islam, but in major religious traditions. But especially in the 1970s, 1980s, there was this global Islamic revival that took people by surprise because the decades prior to that were very secularizing decades in the Muslim world, so to say. And so I wanted to know if there had been echoes of that global Islamic revival of the 1970s, 80s, and onward in the Caribbean? And if yes, how did it manifest itself? One concrete example of the way it happened in the Anglophone Caribbean and in Guyana in particular is something you and I, Ermin, have discussed before, which is the advent of the Libyan Islamic World Call Society into the Anglophone Caribbean through the non-aligned movement, in this case, specifically Muammar Gaddafi's Libya. Uh, so, you know, because Guyana was a non-aligned um, pseudo-socialist country at the time, Libya sent diplomats to Guyana once, and especially once they realized that there were Muslims there in the 1970s. And then in 1977, the primary uh, Libyan diplomat in Guyana, whose name was Ahmed Ehwas, brought with him a kind of, I want to say Arabized Islam that entered the fray into this already pre-existent discourse of Sunni purification. And, you know, what was and wasn't um, a real Islamic practice and what was actually just an Indian cultural practice and so on. So he uh, formed an organization called the Guyana Islamic Trust, which still exists in Guyana and is the representative of maybe a more conservative brand of Wahhabi influenced Sunni Islam than had previously existed before in that country. So there is a definite trajectory of the introduction of a different Arab a form of like Arab Islam that contradicts, you know, the Indo-Iranian Islam that indentured laborers brought with them. And then, you know, starting in the 80s and, and throughout the 90s, what happened too was that, you know, young men who wanted to study Islam stopped going to India and Pakistan, which was where they used to go to learn Islam and receive theological training and so on. And they started going to the Arab world. That is in part, of course, because of Gulf funding of their studies. And they still go to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and to a lesser extent, Egypt. And of course, they bring that back with them. Yeah, yeah. Ken? I think three kind of concrete examples that uh, come to mind in regards to this. And I think, yeah, there's a significant influence, especially because you start to see a lot of reverts emerge in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Of course, they're going to be very influenced by this as they kind of spread globally through uh, funding and, and mosques being built and uh, those types of things. And there are examples uh, of, you know, these different sheikhs or leaders who traveled and were trained um, in centers of Islamic revival, uh, like the Afro-Caribbean 
uh, originally David Donalds. Uh, he's uh, from Granada, and he became known as Sheikh Daoud Ahmed Faisal. Uh, started the Islamic Mission of America and the, the Dar al-Islam movement, which was significant in the the um, Black Caribbean as they tried to connect Black Muslim movements in the states with wider. Um, Afro-Caribbean causes and, and concerns and started to have missionizing efforts going on in the Afro-Caribbean. So they brought, you know, everything from the perspectives of Said Qutub uh, and Hassan al-Banna. They, they brought that into the Caribbean context as well, publishing about it in their local papers, having discourses around it, uh, talking about Qaddafi as well and, and all of that. But I, I think one of the interesting kind of later ones, not back in the 1970s, 80s, when the Islamic revival was really hitting, but kind of the after effects was watching the competition to build Cuba's first mosque. Turkey and, and Saudi Arabia were competing to fund that mosque that is now built. It was established in, in 2015 as uh, Mesquite Allah. And, you know, the Saudis won out uh, and they were able to provide the funding. But, uh, you know, Erdogan went on a massive public relations campaign, traveled to Cuba as he was arriving in Havana, pointed, oh, a mosque would look great up there and had plans to build it off the style of the Otakoy Mosque there uh, on, on the Bosphorus. And so, again, this kind of competition to be the, the, the de facto leaders of the Sunni Muslim world uh, and to stand in for these like Islamic nations that are also leaders in, in uh, the, the modern neoliberal order as well, was not only occurring in places in the Middle East and North Africa as Tur- Turkey and Saudi Arabia compete to have that kind of image projected, uh, but also happening in the Caribbean. Uh, and in this instance, uh, Saudi Arabia won out, but Turkey continues to fund meetings of different Latin American and Caribbean Muslim scholars, gathering them in Istanbul. Saudi Arabia does the same. And so we continue to see this influence through through money and through politicking um, and through the training of imams, et cetera, uh, within the Caribbean and then beyond in the wider Americas. Yeah, and a follow-up question to that then, and based on what both of you had said, and Alia, you mentioned something interesting really about the students going to India and Pakistan to get their theological religious training, and then more recently there is much more move to go and study in the Arab world. So who are the prominent Muslim scholars in the region, in the Caribbean? And how about knowledge production? Do they produce a religious knowledge in the Caribbean, or do they just import it from other Muslim countries and translate maybe some of those works? Is it indigenous? Is it imported? Who are the main voices, more influential, and maybe what schools of thought they belong to? I know it's a very broad question, but if, you, if each mm-hmm. of you could maybe answer it briefly and give us some understanding of that. I would say the majority of knowledge is imported, or there's this kind of transnational exchange with um, scholars in places like Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, and still also in Pakistan to a lesser extent, where those people are viewed as the authorities and more in touch with, you know, true, quote unquote, true authentic Islam than anyone in the Caribbean could be. And in fact, I would say there was more local knowledge production in the earlier days of colonialism than there is now, just because of the increase in, you know, exchange with these people who are seen as more important authorities because they're from Muslim majority regions of the world. In the earlier 20th century, there was this kind of flowering of local literature and the dissemination of Islam and Islamic theology through like pamphleting. All these organizations in Guyana and Trinidad had their own newspapers, pamphlets, little books that they printed. There was this one Afro-Guyanese newspaper, Muslim newspaper called The Clarion. The Ahmadis also wrote a ton of literature and disseminated a ton of literature um, about Islam. There are tons of those like kind of 
pamphleting, like 20th mm -hmm. century pamphleting that existed that really don't exist anymore. Like people just use the texts that Saudi Dawa efforts export to the Caribbean. One scholar that we can point to perhaps is, um, or one or two scholars that we can point to perhaps, at least in the past, is this one gentleman, um, Haji Ruknadin Sahab, who essentially founded ASJA, which is the main Trinidadian Sunni organization. And he, he was an indentured laborer who essentially cohered Sunni Islam in Trinidad and is very, very well known. Um, Trinidad also has like, you know, a branch of like Darul Ifta, but there are lots and lots of competing organizations and factions in the Anglophone Caribbean. And then of course, this tension with this, this, these forces of like external authorities. Mm -hmm. So there are no singular um, scholars. In, in that sense, who are most well-known. Are there any Muslim institutions of high learning, Islamic universities or institutions that produce, you mm -hmm. know, scholars locally? Uh, yeah, not, not I wouldn't say of like higher learning. There are certainly um, madrasas, right? Like I attended one, but um, Islamic universities, no, no, no. That's why they go and study abroad. Yeah. I don't remember the details, uh, so not very great scholarship at the moment, but there was just recently signed an agreement, um, and this is in one of the recent Latin American and Caribbean Islamic Studies newsletter editions. Uh, it was just kind of news that they're trying to found an Islamic university in Brazil, mm -hmm. I do believe, uh, and it's a partnership with Saudi Arabia uh, to be able to train scholars locally. But there's also a Diobandi effort to try and, and set up some you know, institutes to train scholars locally as well. Even in Haiti, they were trying to, to build a center to train Haitian imams locally um, as well. And that, that, that came from some Trinidadian Dual Islam type of uh, institutions. So again, there are some efforts, but they're, they're nascent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and perhaps to, to kind of build on this whole pamphlet dissemination and, and discussion of Islamic ideas locally, I think now what's perhaps replaced pamphlets are YouTube and Facebook totally. videos. Right. Uh, Right. I mean, there's an exchange, an inter-Caribbean exchange happening as well. So uh, a lot of Muslims in Cuba or Puerto Rico will watch Trinidadian Muslim sheikhs, uh, you know, to, to deliver their YouTube messages or Abdullah Hakim Quick, who's up in Canada. He has a, a big web presence and a big influence among certain people. But even uh, someone like uh, Imam Zaid Ab uh, Abdurrahim, who's in Orlando working with, you know, Spanish-speaking Muslims in the Orlando, Florida area, but he still zooms in. YouTube's in, Facebook's in, back to mosques in Puerto Rico. Uh, and so I think now you're starting to get some inter-Caribbean or wider American exchange through digital translations and, and digital artifacts as well. Yeah, and there is also, I think, Bilal Phillips, right, who is from that region originally, if I'm not mistaken, right? And he is globally, globally recognized and globally well-known. Uh, or am I being mistaken? I don't know his biography too well, but... Yeah, I mean, there. I, I think, I mean, like Abdullah Hakim Quick and some others, they have perhaps Afro-Caribbean or some type of Caribbean lineage, and they've emerged in kind of a broader, you know, kind of global resonance and, and recognition. Yeah, and I think B Bilal Phillips, yes, um, while his origin is Caribbean, um, I don't think his reach is particularly Caribbean, and the worlds in which he operates are not particularly Caribbean. So... When it comes to the institutionalization of Islam, in many Muslim-majority countries, for instance, you have these ministries of religious affairs or ministries for religious endowments, some kind of central authority often 
So how is Islam administered and managed in the Caribbean? Are there central authorities or centralized institutions or are they sectarian or are they even at the more local versions of that? Can you can you get, tell us more about it? So these are small places. Um, so yes, there is some centralization of the majority Sunni authorities in Guyana. It's the Central Islamic Organization of Guyana, the CIOG in Trinidad. It's the Anjuman Sunatul Jamaat Association, ASJA. Uh, which was founded in 1936. Um, and the CIOG, the origins of it date from those times too, from the 1930s when, you know, indentured laborers and former indentured laborers started to organize themselves into these cohesive bodies. So those, those two groups, you know, they tend to appoint themselves as the spokespeople of all the Muslims in those countries, even though they don't really represent all the Muslims in those countries, but they are the ones who have the relationships with the government. And so they are usually the, the two bodies that the governments of Guyana and Trinidad, respectively, call upon as the Islamic authorities to speak for the Muslims in those countries. And do they receive any funding from the government? Yes, they have. Um, at least the CIOG certainly has in the past. Ken? Yeah, I think uh, where you see some of the, the parallels here, like in Cuba, you've got the, the Cuban Islamic League, the Islamic League of Cuba, uh, that's run locally by um, a revert named Pedro Lazo Yaya. He's known as Imam Yaya. He's very, he's a pillar of the of the Muslim community in in Cuba. And obviously, in Cuba, you're going to have to go through the government. Um, and so, you know, the the building of the mosque is through the funding of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, also with the support of of the Cuban government to give the permits for that, to to allow for that within the the broader control of the, of the Cuban government uh, in in terms of uh, religious expression and uh, religious architecture uh, in the region. But other than that, in the Hispanophone Caribbean, it's it's much more diffused, much more um, ad hoc, and you've got individual communities banding together to build a mosque because they have a critical mass and and they're not finding funding from elsewhere. They're often funding from within their own community as well, pooling their resources from what they've earned uh, based on the businesses they started. Uh, you know, one local Palestinian Puerto Rican Muslim talks about how he opened the first IHOP franchise uh, in Puerto Rico and with that was able to kind of build a wider business and then they started having gatherings in the back of his garage. And now they can uh, have you know, Sahur, and, you know, in Ramadan. I mean, <laughs> Introducing American pancakes, yeah, exactly. oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's, it's much more informal and there's no formal kind of league or organization or institution. Um, and, and again, you see that in the broader Americas. I think it's really in the Anglophone Caribbean where you see some of the, the most institutionalization that has occurred. So I think both of you have touched on politics in, in this previous answer in some way, the relationship between Islamic organizations and governments. So maybe this would be probably the last uh, question that I'm going to ask in this episode. And that is to tell us a little bit about Muslim politics within the Caribbean. Are Muslims organized politically? Do they have their own political institutions? Are they maybe subsumed or integrated into larger politics? And, you know, just a basic question, is there a Muslim politics in the Caribbean? Mm -hmm. That's such an interesting question. I mean, I feel like there have been at different times, like you can certainly point to a Muslim politics that is a black Muslim politics in Trinidad in 1990 at the time of the coup. But what happens now in Trinidad and Guyana, and really what's always happened in those places, is that religious politics are subsumed into racial politics, which are the most important force 
in the Anglophone Caribbean, in these spaces that are shared equally between the descendants of enslaved Africans and the descendants of Indian indentured laborers. Both Guyana and Trinidad have a party that is race-based from each group, right? There's an Indian party, there's a Black party. They run against each other and they take turns at winning. And so Muslims, because they are historically in the Anglophone Caribbean, you know, associated with Indians, Muslims tended to be members of the Indian party in, you know, in Guyana, it's the People's Progressive Party. And um, people of African descent who are majority Christian are members of another party. So they're absorbed into racial politics. Um, once in a while, you'll see them, uh, you know, there have been one or two attempts to form like a Muslim interest party, but it never succeeds. They are really, really just kind of absorbed into the racial politics. But it also means, too, that Islam continues to be framed as a mostly Indian religion. It is a really interesting question that I've, I've thought increasingly more about uh, in terms of Muslim politics and, and, and how we usually define that and what the, is essentially the kind of broader public perceptions of what Muslim politics look like. Um, I think the the Caribbean and the broader Americas provide really interesting examples to kind of counter some of those public perceptions and perhaps re reinterpret what what Muslim politics means. And I think in the broader Americas, you've seen some some more explicit examples, whether that be in the tri-border area between Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay, where Lebanese Muslims and, and local Arab Muslim communities have organized politically in order to push back against assumptions that they are terrorists or that they are running illegal cartels there in this kind of dangerous borderland zone. And John Tufik Karam writes a lot about that. Or looking at President Bukele of uh, El Salvador, he uh, comes from Muslim backgrounds uh, as well. And so there's been Muslim heads of state, you could say, yeah. um, in, 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 in the broader Americas, right? And it comes up in Argentina, Arab Argentine president. He did not identify as Muslim, and yet he was identified as Muslim by the public. Mm-hmm. And when you get to a place like Puerto Rico, um, you know, a lot of the local Palestinians they've told me, well, yeah, we, we don't really want to get involved in politics. The less people know about us, the better. We're just trying to fly under the radar here, make some money, you know, be able to exist and do our thing. And even that, though, this kind of apolitical stance is a political stance, because then when you have local reverts who are seeing within Islam a certain energy and a certain language for their anti-colonial, pro-independence sentiments about Puerto Rico leveraging its its power and, and pushing against American empire. And they're saying, this is Islam. Islam is about liberation. Islam is about justice. And, and Islam is is our, our language for revolution uh, here in Puerto Rico uh, to be able to push back against American imperial power. And then local Palestinian Muslims are like, okay, let's, 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 let's calm down. Let's, let's not get too excited about this. And then that thus becomes a political discourse between these two racialized uh, communities, right? And it's it's interesting to me how, again, Puerto Rican Muslim converts will pull on the discourse of Palestinian independence, Palestinian resistance, in order to add fuel to their their own efforts towards independence or towards, uh, you know, at least some some degree of ability to to be self governing. Um, and and yet the Palestinians are, are are less enthusiastic about that in terms of the solidarities as well. So again, I think the the dialectics and the dynamics of Muslim politics take on a different tone than perhaps they do elsewhere in the global Islamic landscape. Ken reminded me that I should point out that the current head of state of Guyana, the president, is a Muslim, Irfan Ali. 
Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure that our listeners have learned a lot about Islam and Muslims in Caribbean. This is Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast at George Mason University. I talked to Dr. Ali Khan and Dr. Kenneth Chitwood about Islam and Muslims in the Caribbean. Ali and Ken, thank you so much. Thank you, Armin. Yeah, lots of fun. Thanks. Thanks.